This is Gerard Robinson with The Learning Curve, and we are back for another dynamic conversation with some of the leading thinkers in education. And of course, I can't do any of this without my co-host, who's on with me. Hey, Gerard, how are you doing this week? Well, I'm not going to raise any question about weather because I've fallen into that crap a couple of times. What I will say is that my family is uh, outside working on their tan. Um, and having a great time absor- of absorbing vitamin D naturally. Uh-huh, so uh-huh, uh-huh. that's about Thanks it. for that, Gerard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We appreciate mm-hmm. that up here in yeah. New England. That's fantastic. Thanks so much. No, it's, um, I'm, I'm glad you're holding up, even if you want to like stick that knife in and turn it a little bit harder, but I'm glad you're holding up. I'm glad to hear that so far everybody's everybody's healthy and happy. We here in the Kendall household, I feel like I had a big win because this week my husband said to me, I don't know how you work from home with three children in the house and accomplish anything. I have great admiration for you. And I thought, there you go. This, <laughs> this quarantine has been, has been good for something. It's been good for the marriage. So, but we've got, um, we've got an exciting show this week. We've got our good friend on, um, Tim Keller, who will be with us in, in just a bit. And I think a lot of folks will be looking forward to that, but also, you know, it's, things feel like they've come to, uh, come to a slowdown, but the world keeps turning and, um, you know, we just have different things to talk about in, in the world of education, don't we? So we sure do. Yeah, we sure do. Well, I'm gonna, I'll dive right in with our first story of the week. Um, and this one, I think, I know that you like this one because we've talked a little bit about AP testing um, in, in the past couple weeks. But this one from Education Dive, AP testing goes on with revisions amid school closures. And so AP testing goes on. I mean, the headline says it all. Um, so it's going to be, you know, a little bit different. So most exams, they say, are only going to have two or three responses for kids. They'll be timed separately. The exams will be shorter. There'll be open book and open notes. And AP has developed tools to direct to detect plagiarism. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, amazing, right? Because AP tests are so important for kids in so many ways. And, you know, kids that are looking for college credit and it's it's becoming increasingly this wonderful tool for shining a light on equity and inequities in our schools, who has access, who doesn't, who's sitting exams, who's passing exams. But this also really made me think, Gerard, about this conundrum that we that states find themselves in right now with regard to just testing in general, right? Is testing supposed to continue this year? Probably not. So if it doesn't continue this year, what do you do? Do you give it in the fall? Do you wait until next spring? And if you wait, what's lost? Accountability and, and you know, knowing where kids are and knowing if schools are serving kids. So reading this made me think, well, gee, AP has been able to try something new, try something innovative, be pretty nimble. Now, by definition, as I don't have to tell you, state bureaucracies are not designed to be nimble, (laughs) but I think that it opens up some real possibilities for how we should be thinking going forward about, number one, tests as the mechanism for accountability, and number two, what do we need to think about with regard to how we deliver tests, how we keep tests secure um, in the name of continuing to shine a light on, you know, inequities within our systems and holding schools accountable. What did you think of this one, Gerard? Well, you bring up a really good point about AP itself that is going to continue uh, at a time where we hear stop, halt on a number of things. And I do think it makes a lot of sense uh, not to uh, test students statewide 
for exams for a host of reasons, but AP decided to do so. Uh, we have to keep in mind that a, a smaller select number of students will take AP versus all required students in grade appropriate levels have to take tests. So there's a, a number challenge uh, that may be in place for the, the broader society, but I'm glad to see it move forward. You know, what I'd like to see is once the results are out, what if for some reason 50% of the students fail? Uh, or, or don't score the numbers that they should, particularly these are students who should. Well, let's say they don't. Uh, if they don't, then what will happen? Will we just discount the test for everyone? Will we do a makeup? So I just think if the test scores or the number of people scoring the right uh, at the right levels just aren't as high as we think they should, what's going to be our response? So that's what it made me think. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I'm also really fascinated to learn more about what are these measures in place they have to detect plagiarism, right? Because, because of course, the first thing we all think about is like, who's taken this test? <laughs> and how are you? I mean, test security being a huge thing, but this just raises um, raises a number of really interesting questions. And and once this all becomes clear, especially given your experience, I am really eager to hear what you think about how different states end up approaching all of these questions and. And how, you know, what, what we learn from, from the AP experiment here. So I've had an opportunity to actually speak to uh, people who are involved in managing and analyzing tests and the algorithm that they have in place is so good. I'm not saying it's perfect because it's not, but it's so good that they can across school lines, identify where people are in fact participating in plagiarism. And uh, I had to address this in my state capacity at one point, and, and we, we took care of it. But the technology was helpful because they were identifying things that maybe not only the human eye, but uh, perception, human prejudices may have weighed in one way or another. So the technology is there. And I also know, um, and this is more for people who are taking online exams, that we have technology that can basically look into your eye and they can identify whether someone walked into the room on the left side or the right side. They can also tell if you're reading uh, answers beyond the, uh, the screen itself by body temperature. So, you know, we understand. Okay, now, that, I'm a, now I'm a little bit frightened, Gerard. <laughs> oh, I, oh, you have no idea the things that we know about <laughs> test takers and what they can do. So I'll stop there. Oh, yeah, please do. My goodness, you're going to give me a heart attack. (laughs) On to to some lighter news, I guess. (laughs) Well, on to lighter news. Uh, The story that caught my interest this week is authored by Ian Fisher. And the title is Passover, Easter, and Ramadan Become Virtual Holidays of Renewal. And uh, as we know, we are in the high season of worship and celebration for the three Abrahamic religions. And what's unique about this season is that most people of the three faiths can't get together uh, in mosques and temples and churches, synagogues and other places because of COVID-19 and because of decisions made by both, both federal, state and local leaders. But we also have to realize that religious institutions have also made decisions about how they're going to handle uh, parishioners and the a presentation of the faith. So in a lot of mosques, we know there's prayers five times a day. We know a lot of those prayers take place uh, together. Well, we know that uh, in Britain, uh, one of the gentlemen there said that, uh, you know, quote, 
we could do our best to host a remote Ramadan that is spiritually uplifting. Well, that's Muslims in Britain. But here in the United States, they also talk to uh, Robert Jeffries, uh, who's a pastor of a 5,000 person church in Dallas. And he said, you know, next Sunday, I will remind our congregation of the words of Jesus in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. And he goes on from there. But his point is, even in the absence of us getting together, technology has made it possible for us to still promote the faith. And so they will take place. Uh, the holiday season will take place, but uh, it'll be different this year. And in some ways, I think there's be some new revelations about what it means to have more time as an individual, as a family in your home versus in a community setting that may in fact bring us closer to the Lord that we serve. Yeah. And I think that even for, for folks who aren't observant, you know, the fact that we mm-hmm. have all of this, just, just technology at our disposal at this point in time. So those of us who do observe have the opportunity to do that in, in you know, a different community setting, but a community setting nonetheless. And those of us who don't are still benefiting from these technologies that can help us feel connected. And certainly this season, no matter, no matter your faith is, um, is absolutely one where, you know, um, the, hopefully spring is coming, as you said, season of renewal. And, um, we're entering into out of what has probably felt like a really dark period for some, and this can provide a lot of hope, a lot of connection. And boy, I I keep telling my kids too, I'm like, you might hate being together all the time, but you have no idea how lucky you are to be able to be this connected to the people that you care about, you know, during this period of time. So that's a great story. I love that one, Gerard. Thanks for that. So coming up, we, like I said, we are going to talk to Tim Keller, such an interesting guy. I know he's got some great stories to tell us. And also he's going to tell us um, a little bit about some recent news out of the Supreme Court, meaning that we might um, get some education news coming down sooner than we thought uh, as a result of a, of the COVID-19 crisis and, and the pandemic that we're in. Um, so looking forward to that. And we will be back with Tim in just a minute. And this week, listeners, we have with us Tim Keller, Senior Attorney at the Institute for Justice. Tim leads IJ's Educational Choice Team and oversees the IJ attorneys who help policymakers design constitutionally defensible educational choice programs and who defend educational choice programs in courtrooms nationwide. Tim has served as IJ's lead counsel in Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization versus WIN, a U.S. Supreme Court victory that protected Arizona's pioneering tax credit funded private school scholarship program. Keller also successfully defended Arizona's Empowerment Scholarship Account Program, a publicly funded education savings account program that he helped design and that was the first of its kind in the nation. Tim has worked as a research assistant at the Goldwater Institute. He's clerked for the Maricopa County Superior Court judge and also clerked for an Arizona Court of Appeals judge. He has a law degree from Arizona State University, among many, many other qualifications. Welcome. Gerard and I are so excited to have you on the program today. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm a, I'm a longtime listener, first-time guest, so I'm, I'm thrilled <laughs> to be here. 
<laughs> I love that somebody just said that. That's I think that's the first time somebody said that. Long time listener, so a matter of months, but we we appreciate that. And it's always always a delight to be with you, Tim. So okay. So we can't, we can't, I mean, we talk about it a lot on this show because it's so important and we've had one of your colleagues on the show um, before too, to talk about Espinosa v. Um, Montana Department of Revenue. But, um, you know, just recently SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States indicated that it's going to delay hearing oral arguments for April cases, but will be offering rulings on the cases they've heard thus far this term. So you all at the Institute for Justice, your team team has done a remarkable job of working on this case. So two-pronged question here. Can you tell us a little bit about the case and its potential impacts so that we can recap for our listeners? But then also let's talk about what the impact of this pandemic could have on the timing of the ruling. What are you thinking? Yeah, sure. Well, if you don't mind, I'll actually reverse the order of those questions. Please, uh, go for yeah, it. Because it's, 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 it is not just the April sittings that, that the court uh, has has pushed back, but it also did not hear oral arguments last month in March, um, and so it is entirely possible that the courts is going to be issuing a decision sooner than we had anticipated. Uh, obviously, the Espinosa case is uh, controversial and, and highly watched. It's a high-profile case. We would have anticipated it to come down towards the end of the court session in June, um, but it's it's definitely possible that, uh, that the court is going to issue a decision sooner than expected. Um, of course, it's also possible that with uh, all the things going on, they're, they're working to figure out how they might be able to hear some of the, these cases this term and not wait to hear them next session. Um, so we'll just wait and see. Um, but I can tell you this, and this gets to, to the first part of your question. Um, we are ready for a decision anytime. The Espinosa case really marks the, the culmination of almost 30 years of litigation at the Institute for Justice defending school choice programs from legal attack. Um, in fact, there has not been a single day since we opened our doors in 1991 that we haven't been in court defending a school choice program from a legal challenge. Um, and very often uh, the, the source of those challenge are state constitutional provisions known as Blaine Amendments. And Montana's Blaine Amendment is at the heart of the Espinosa case. Um, as your listeners probably recall, um, back in 2015, the Montana legislature adopted a scholarship tax credit program. Uh, that program allowed individuals to donate money to nonprofit scholarship organizations that then bundled those donations and awarded them to families to attend the school of their choice, to use uh, a tuition scholarship to, to go to, to any school that the parent chooses. But shortly after the program was enacted, the Montana legislature, or the Montana Department of Revenue rather, um, said that the Montana Blaine Amendment, which, which I know, I'm not gonna quote it verbatim, but it's basically a provision that says uh, no, no public money can be used to, to support or aid sectarian schools uh, required the department to adopt a rule that would prohibit families from using their tuition scholarships to attend religious schools. And so the Institute for Justice filed a lawsuit challenging that rule. We said it was unconstitutional, that it violated the federal constitution to exclude families from using this program at the school of their choice. Um, we actually succeeded in having the rule struck down both in the trial court 
and in the Montana Supreme Court. But the Montana Supreme Court went a step further and they said, now that the rule has been invalidated under technical state law grounds, not on constitutional grounds, they said, now we're looking at a program that in fact offers robust choice to families and families can choose religious schools. And we don't think that families can use them at religious schools under our Blaine Amendment. And so the Montana Supreme Court struck down the program in its entirety. We took that up to the U.S. Supreme Court and we're asking the court to reverse that decision and reinstate the program. Wow. So throwing out the whole program on its face because of, because of this one provision. But imagine um, that must have had you guys really thinking like, OK, here's here's the big opportunity. Um, I, I want to ask you before I ask you about what you anticipate in the wake of, of a positive decision. There's another case that you um, argued before the U.S. Court of Appeals right here at the First Circuit in Boston, and I and some of my colleagues at Pioneer had a chance to watch you in action, which was really cool. Um, but this is a – it's a different case, but it pertains to sort of the same issue. Three Maine families challenging this state law that – so in Maine, there's a town tuitioning program mainly – and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's a largely rural state. And so sometimes kids don't even have schools to go to in their community. So you can – you can you you know, this, the state is responsible for allowing you to attend school somewhere else. But thus far, Maine has said you can't use these payments from the state to attend religious schools. Can you tell me about, about this case and any ties or connections to the SBA? Espinosa case? Yes, it is, it is closely related to Espinosa, uh, no doubt. So in, in Maine, uh, as, as you noted, there are many rural communities that simply don't have enough students to, for, the, for the town to operate its own public school. And what the state of Maine has uh, allowed or created is a system of town tuitioning. So for those families who live in towns that don't operate their own public schools, uh, the town provides tuition to the families to attend the school of their choice. Um, and, and this includes not only neighboring public schools, but also uh, approved private schools. However, um, since 1980, there has been a statute on the books in Maine that says families can't choose a religious school. They can't use their, their tuition to attend a religious school. And the original justification for that law was uh, an, an attorney, a state attorney general opinion that concluded it would violate the federal constitution to allow families to choose religious schools. Um, and of course, we now know that the answer to that question, that the, the answer to that legal question um, is, is exactly the opposite. Um, in 2002, in a case litigated by the Institute for Justice, the U.S. Supreme Court said in no uncertain terms that families can use vouchers, scholarships, tuition, tax credits, um, and town tuitioning programs to attend religious schools without violating the federal constitution so long as two things were true. Number one, that the state remained entirely neutral with regard to religion, that it neither uh, favored one religion over another or favored a religion over non-religion, just kept its hands off, off the choice entirely, um, and that the parents had a genuine choice as to where they wanted to direct their, their tuition scholarships, where they wanted to enroll their students. So as long as the program is one of true private choice, where the government is entirely neutral with regard to religion, 
there's no problem if a family wants to use uh, a scholarship or tuition at, uh, at a religious school. Um, however, even in light of that ruling, the state of Maine uh, determined or decided not to repeal that restriction and to keep it on the books. Um, and so the question is, does it, does it violate the federal constitution if a state has a policy of excluding families from choosing religious educational options among an array of non-religious. Um, we believe that it does. We believe that it violates the, the neutrality required by the federal constitution because it is that in fact, the state is favoring non-religion over religion. Um, and we believe that the rule should fall. So we filed this case um, about the same time that we brought the case in Montana and, and both cases um, had the same design, which is to ensure that uh, under the federal constitution, states cannot discriminate against uh, families for choosing religious educational options if the state chooses to enact a school choice program or to, to otherwise provide additional educational options for families outside of the public school system. And so, Tim, if we get or if you get um a decision that you don't want in Espinoza, right? So if it comes down a negative decision for the school choice community, do you see this main case as a potential backup? And then the other part of this question is that in light of a favorable decision, so say that, that Espinoza comes down and they say, absolutely, you know, IJ, you are right. And it's, it's time to, to say once and for all that these programs are constitutional. What, what legwork do we still have to do? It's, it, it's not like there's suddenly going to be a pro proliferation of private school choice programs across the country. What, what do you see as next steps in light of a favorable decision? So is the, is the main case sort of a backup? Should we get a, a negative decision in Espinosa? And the answer is it may be. Of course, it would depend on the, the precise contours of a, of a bad decision in Espinosa. Um, I, I honestly don't see uh, an avenue uh, under the current court where we lose the Espinosa case on the merits. In, in other words, I don't think we're going to get a decision that says it's permissible for this for a state to discriminate against religion in the context of a school choice program. But the uh, Montana Department of Revenue in, in litigating the Espinosa case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court did everything they could to make it seem like the Espinosa case was a bad vehicle for the court. And they really seem to be driving um, uh, and pushing for the court to either dismiss the case as improvidently granted or to convince a majority of the justices that our clients in the case didn't have standing because the program, the entire program had been struck down um, and, to dismiss, and to dismiss it on procedural rather than uh, substantive grounds. So if we, if we lost on, on procedural or technical grounds um, and the court never reached the merits, then, then absolutely the main case uh, would provide another vehicle for the court to to get at that same question, which is that can a state discriminate and exclude religious options from the school choice program? Um, of course, if we lost Espinosa on the merits, um, that could control the outcome in the main case as well. So, um, so we'll just have to, to wait and see. 
Um, now, as far as uh, a positive ruling, which is, is the ruling that we are anticipating, we are, we are more than, than just cautiously optimistic. We are, we are feeling very optimistic at this point that uh, we Love will it. see a, a, good, a good decision <laughs> in Espinoza. Um, a decision there is, is going to remove um, a significant legal obstacle to passing school choice programs in, in a large number of states. There are, there are about 37 states which, uh, whose state constitutions um, include blame language. This is, this is language that, that says something to the effect of you know, no appropriations of public dollars shall be used to, to aid or benefit sectarian schools. Um, these, these provisions are often invoked uh, during legislative proceedings as a barrier to school choice. Um, it gives legislators who are opposed to choice programs something to hang their hat on when they are opposing it. Um, and so we were going to take that, that away from them, that, that argument away from them with a good decision in Espinosa. Um, of course, it doesn't remove all of the political obstacles to choice. And so it's going to be incumbent on, on those who um, you know, would like to see school choice programs either created or, or expanded uh, in state legislatures to really work hard and, and to make that case. Um, it, it's interesting because I certainly thought that the Espinosa decision would be one of the, the significant discussions and, and, and factors driving education reform discussions in state legislatures next uh, next legislative cycle. Um, but it'll also be interesting to see how uh, uh, the <laughs> COVID-19 we were usurped, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> take, take it yeah. over everything. Take it over everything. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll see what opportunities that provides as well. So, <laughs> Tim, thanks for joining us today. Oh, Gerard, good to hear your voice, my friend. Yes, happy to be here and good to be talking with you both. It was great to hear you begin your conversation with us talking about the history of IJ. And I remember in 1992 when I was a fifth grade school teacher in Los Angeles, um, Tim, uh, at that time, a young attorney named Clint Bullock uh, was uh, talking about the importance of school choice in California at a time when we were prepping to get the school voucher initiative on the ballot. And so, you know, going back to the 90s, uh, now, Associate Justice Bolick, but IJ has been on the front on the front ground, uh, or I should say, on the, uh, on the on the on the front burner of this issue for years. And as you've shown us thus far, you know, any case about education that goes to the Supreme Court is really a question about power: who gets it, who should not, why, and when. So we're in an election year. Uh, it's going to be a pretty big presidential election year. That you know, we know a lot of people in 2020, as in 1992, simply do not think that private school choice should have public money behind it. What are some of the possible political and educational outcomes of the Espinoza ruling, given your favorable belief that it will go the right way? So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, even before the, the ruling in Espinosa, I feel like those who oppose providing families with private educational options, um, whether it's funded with, with public money or uh, a, a tax credit mechanism, which of course relies on private uh, donations to, to private scholarship organizations, um, that the opponents of school choice were already looking to mount um, uh, 
challenges to school choice. Um, there were two ballot measures that, that had been filed, one in the state of Missouri um, and the other in my home state of Arizona, um, which were designed to limit the authority of state legislatures to enact educational policy reforms that would include uh, either new or expanded educational choice programs. Um, and so I certainly think that um, in those states where um, uh, individuals can take measures directly to the voters in the form of ballot initiatives, uh, that we could increasingly see um, that sort of direct action being taken by those who oppose school choice. Um, and I also think that they're going to take advantage of you know, the current dynamics with COVID-19 uh, to, to argue that um, you know, schools need, public schools need to be the primary focus um, at the, in, in this current educational climate. Of course, I would suggest that uh, you know, if we had more robust educational options, uh, if we had policies in place that would spur educational entrepreneurship, um, and that would let families direct the education, their own education dollars to the schools or education providers of their choice, um, that we might not be in such dire straits at the moment, um, and that we'd have a lot more options for families, um, at least in the current climate, um, and that, you know, even when this passes, um, might allow families to take advantage of some new educational options that would crop up as a result of the current crisis we're facing. You mentioned Arizona, your home state. Uh, you've also designed and helped to do uh, to defend in court Arizona's Empowerment Scholarship Account Program, uh, which is the state's ESA program. You also wrote a chapter titled The Constitutional Case for ESAs in a very great book all of you should go out and buy. It's called Education Savings Accounts, uh, The New Frontier in School Choice. And you Truly know, a masterpiece, were, gentlemen. Truly, truly a masterpiece. We happen to know some of the editors of that book. So the great editors on that book. Exactly. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So, so, Tim, talk to us about the ESA program in Arizona and other ESA programs across the country, as well as the legal and political barriers they face. Yeah. So the educational, uh, the, the education savings account program in Arizona, which was the nation's first ESA program, was really born out of necessity. So in 2006, Arizona adopted two voucher programs. These were programs that were passed by a Republican legislature and signed into law by a Democratic governor. Uh, they were intended to serve students with disabilities and children uh, who were in the foster care system. Those programs were immediately challenged um, by the teachers unions in Arizona under one of Arizona's two Blaine amendments. Um, the one that was the primary focus of the case, um, and on this one I can quote verbatim, said that there shall be uh, no taxes laid or appropriations of public funds made in aid of private or sectarian schools. Um, and the, the argument that was, was made was that this was a, a much broader Blaine Amendment because it, it doesn't just talk about sectarian schools. It includes that phrase private or sectarian schools. Now, there were a lot of reasons why we believed that didn't apply. Um, number one, because you know, just facially, textually, school choice programs aid families, 
not schools. They're all about aiding individuals, not institutions. Um, we also recognize that historically, the, the, the provision itself was designed to discriminate in favor of a Protestant public school system um, against other outside uh, influences. And, and, and so it was e even historically looking at the provision, it was designed to discriminate uh, against religion in favor of the Protestant public school system that was in place at the time it was adopted. But all those things aside, we ultimately lost that case. Um, and, and the Arizona Supreme Court struck down our two voucher programs under that provision. And they said that uh, because parents had no choice but to use their voucher at a, a private school, it had to fall. But there were, uh, there were two silver linings in the case. Number one, uh, the court recognized that, it, that the decision only applied to voucher programs and not to any of Arizona's tax credit scholarship programs. And also that, it, um, that they, they concluded their decision by saying there may indeed be ways of helping these student populations. It just can't be through the voucher programs. And so um, initially we, we pushed through a, a scholarship tax credit program that was designed to raise money to help these student populations because they'd lost their scholarships. Um, but that program passed right in the height of the Great Recession. And even though it had a $5 million cap, we weren't able to reach the cap. And so we were able to help some students, but many students still lost their scholarships and we were desperate to find a solution. Um, and I was, I was rereading the decision and I, and I read that conclusion again. And then I went back and I listened to the oral argument in the case. And of course I had been there that day, but um, listening to it afresh, there was a unique colloquy that took place between one of the Arizona Supreme Court justices and the lawyer for the teachers union. And he said, what if instead of a voucher for tuition, we just gave them money for education and said, use it for whatever you want. Would that violate this constitutional provision? And the teachers union's lawyer said, no, because presumably parents could use it for other things. They could use it for tuition or homeschool expenses, and that would be fine because we wouldn't be constraining their choice um, to where they have to use the money at a, a private school for private school tuition. Um, and so I took that, uh, that, that, that language to uh, my friend, uh, our friend, Matt Ladner, and my friend and mentor, Clint Bullock, who you just mentioned. Um, and I said, what about this? What if, what if, we, what if we designed a program that allowed families to receive uh, you know, their education dollars into a savings account that they could control and use um, on, on whatever they wish, you know, whatever authorized expenses the state would, would permit. Um, and in Arizona, the key was that families who received the scholarships did not have to enroll their child in a private school. Um, they, could, they could do any mix of, of online learning, paying for tutors, they, they were permitted to pay for individual courses at public or charter schools. Um, they could use the money to pay for uh, college tuition. Um, and, as and as originally designed, they could even save their money to use for future college expenses after they graduated from high school. So the idea was to really um, create a system by which parents could wisely invest their education dollars and to incentivize them to use it wisely um, so that they could they could ensure their own child's educational future. Um, and so when that program was first passed, 
uh, it was there was tremendous and significant interest in in, in adopting similar programs in other states. And so very quickly, we saw programs adopted in Florida. Um, we saw a program in Mississippi. There's a special needs program in Tennessee, and now a program in Tennessee for low-income families that is being challenged in two separate lawsuits. And parents represented by the Institute for Justice are defending is defending against both of those lawsuits. Um, we've got a, a North Carolina ESA. We actually had ESA programs vetoed but passed in Virginia and Montana. Um, and so there's there's just been it, it, we hit the ground running, and then of course we had I think one of the most exciting potentially exciting programs ever adopted in the nation um, in Nevada, a universal ESA that that literally every student Holy in the public school system <laughs> would have been would have been uh, eligible for. We actually won that case uh, on the merits in the Nevada Supreme Court. But the court concluded the legislature didn't fund the program, um, and so it couldn't go into effect in the, the year in which it was passed. The legislature, uh, the, that legislative body, the makeup changed, um, and and the new legislature refused to fund the program. So that program never came online, but it was certainly an exciting one. Um, but I, I think there still continues to be tremendous interest in ESAs, um, and I think there's going to be a lot of discussion post-Espinosa in terms of you know legislators who are interested in designing school choice programs, you know what is the best path forward? And I'm, I'm sure that ESAs will continue to be an interesting option for legislators to consider. Oh, I mean, absolutely, Tim. And sure to say that even in this moment of COVID-19, if if most parents knew what an ESA was, I'm sure a lot of us mm. would be wanting to use it right now. So we'll see where that takes us. And we're also, I just, I love that story of how the idea came to be. And so I hope that you'll find lots of other um, transcripts to listen to, you know, quiet moments where you can <laughs> think about the next education reform innovation, because because we're all waiting. And I think you're absolutely right that ESAs are, uh, what, what was the title of the book, gentlemen? The Next Frontier, something like that. Am I getting that right? Am I close? Um, Your education saving the past, uh, the new frontier in school choice. There you go. Plug, little plug there. Everybody should get it. It is. It's it's an incredibly informative book. Tim, it has been our pleasure to have you with us today. Always learn something new and just always so much fun to talk with you. Hope you enjoy um, some Arizona sunshine, even as you uh, keep yourself and your family and, and your neighbors safe. I will. Thank you both so much for having me today. Thank you. Fantastic. Take care. I want to thank Tim Keller again from the Institute for Justice for spending time with us. And now we're going to turn our time to a tweet of the week. And this is from the National Governors Association, April 6, 2020. And basically, the multi-trillion dollar CARES Act, which was created in response to COVID-19, includes more than $30 billion in education funding. And this will be a lifeline to educators and to students. And governors have communicated their priorities to the U.S. Department of Education and other stakeholders. $30 billion is not anything to sneeze at. Uh, glad to see the funding's in place. And glad to see that the governors are taking a lead in this. Uh, as we know that in at least 30 states, K-20 through education is the number one line item in a governor's budget. And so when you have millions of students absent from school and millions of college students not returning, uh, this only not only impacts 
education as we know it, but also the economy that benefits from people being in K-20 settings. So glad to see the National Governors Association take a lead for our families, for our children, and for our educators. Yeah, and I just got to add one thing, and that is it's it's got to be a lot of governors are getting a lot of requests from just the education community alone, telling them, you know, asking them um, to spend this money in certain ways. So it's got to be, wow, a lot to think about, a lot on your plate right now if you are a state leader, I can only imagine. They have a lot um, of new friends. <laughs> yeah. A lot of new friends, a lot of new frenemies. I mean, just to, it's, it's got to be pro- probably not getting a whole lot of sleep. We'll put it that way um, at any rate. But but we appreciate them. And, and you know, it's um, un- unprecedented times. And, and, and it's really interesting to see our leaders step up to the plate. Um, next week, Gerard, we have with us Michael Horn. So, you know, Michael, co-founder and um, distinguished fellow of, at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Really excited to hear from Michael because, man, if there is, can you think of any more disruptive time? And I'm so, I think you said it a couple of weeks ago, Gerard, like so eager to hear innovative ideas, see what innovative new reforms come out of this, um, come out of this moment. And uh, I think we're going to have a lot of good questions for Michael. So until next week, my friend. Um, enjoy that vitamin D with your family and we'll be waiting for a next barb about the weather here in new England. And, uh, but I hope you stay safe and warm and healthy and listeners, you take care too. Bye-bye.